Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, is back and he's continuing in our series on the letters to the churches in Revelation. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that and more on our Brookwood app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. Trust in God. What does that feel like? You know, some, some of us say, well, I'm really not having to because everything's all right. As believers, we need to be attempting something always that we're relying on Christ for, don't we? So what is in my life for which I'm trusting God? We continue our series. What's it called? Can you hear me? Are we hearing God better, more clearly? You know, don't be frustrated if you say, well, I'm not, I'm not hearing that well. Understand that as we seek God, he draws closer. And it's merely the seeking God that turns our attention to him and his spirit refines our hearing. So the series subtitle, what's the series subtitle? Letters from God, and it refers to messages that Jesus sent through John. I think there's somebody in the room I'm allergic to. I haven't been coughing all morning. (laughs) Through John, by an angel, uniquely, to the seven churches in Asia Minor, today Turkey, and these are found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We have handouts, a letter from God, where we list the elements of these letters, And it's an exhaustive list, and every letter to the church doesn't include every element, but these are available still at the bookstore and at the information desk, and they just help train us in how to approach God. We need some practice, don't we? And so we learn. um, And I appreciate that. You know what the word disciple means? Learners. And so I appreciate that you're willing to learn how to hear from God. You're, you're willing to learn about these letters in Revelation because these are pretty intense and they're pretty concentrated and they're very direct. So I'm thankful. Um, it's, it's my pleasure to pastor a church that's willing to hear from God because sometimes it's not flattering what we hear from God. And it draws us to a higher place, to deeper faith. In these letters, as I've said, Jesus examined each church, encouraged their strengths, also pointed out weaknesses that needed improvement to prepare them for coming persecution. And he's doing that in each of us, isn't he? Don't you want to be refined? Don't you want to be strengthened, increased, improved? Because persecution is coming in my belief. And we must be prepared so that we're not fearful, so that we're enabled to represent him. So this particular message, which I've entitled God's Letter to the Faithful, was addressed to the church at Philadelphia. Now the word faithful 
comes from a Greek word, pistos. And it means trustworthy or trustful. This word pistos or pistuo is actually the Greek origin for the words trust, the word faith, and the word belief. They all come from the same Greek origin. And faithful in this instance, in this letter, refers to a person trust who believes in God regardless of circumstances. You know, I don't know whether we trust God until we have difficult circumstances. Do you? I mean, what challenge is there in trusting God? How, how can we even see the strength of our trust until we face some type of struggle, some type of even suffering? The theme for today's message I've taken from Matthew 24. It's on top of your outline, if you'll take out your message guide. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, does that mean we're saved because we endure? What do y'all think? No, can't be. Rather, our endurance, our perseverance through trials and troubles proves our salvation. Doesn't prove it to God, he knows it. Who's it prove it to? Proves it to ourselves, but also proves it to people who are watching. So this letter affirms the faithful obedience of the church in Philadelphia in the midst of persecution. Now, of all seven letters, only two are not rebuked. Philadelphia and Smyrna. Those are alone of the churches that received no complaint from Jesus, no concern expressed. And this message applies to us also, encouraging us to remain faithful throughout our lives, regardless of the difficulties that we encounter. So here's a question. Is our church faithful to God? Are we responding to his calling? And are you individually? Do you know his calling on your life? Are you responding faithfully by trusting, by believing that he will bring it to pass? And is that faith, that faithfulness, is it evident to other people that know you? Because see, that's your witness. That's your influence. So we look at the message to the church in Philadelphia. And first we begin with the first element that's common in every one of these letters, the greeting. In this Bible available at Brookwood, we're on, beginning on page 991. Write this letter to the angel, of course that means the leader, of the church in Philadelphia. Now who knows what the word Philadelphia means? Brotherly love from the Greek phalos or philos. In Greek, and it was named for the relationship between two brothers. Attalus II and his brother Eumenes, who was the king of Pergamum. So it was actually praising the relationship between these two men. Uh, 
Now, the city of Philadelphia was located about 30 miles from Sardis in the Cogamus River Valley. You can see how tightly grouped these cities are. It's on an 800-foot-high hill. Now, the city was called the Gateway to the East because it was located at the junction of several important trade routes, including the Imperial Road that was built by Rome and led to the East. Philadelphia was not founded, though, as a military outpost. It was founded to be a center for Greek culture and language and religion. And so from Philadelphia, the Greek philosophy of life was spread throughout the region and even throughout the world. The city was located on the edge of a volcanic region, which made the soil very fertile and it was uh, ideally suited for vineyards. But the region also was on a fault. So it suffered from pretty frequent seismic activity. In 17 AD, a powerful earthquake struck Philadelphia, along with Sardis and 10 other cities. And Philadelphia continued to experience aftershocks for many years. Verse 7, we continue. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. Now, Jesus introduced himself in every letter with a description that reflected his character. In the previous five letters, the descriptions came from the vision that's recorded at Revelation 1, 12 through 17. But this description is drawn from his character, from his identity in the scriptures generally, notably Isaiah 6, 3. He first refers to himself as Holy One, which is a messianic title for Jesus in the New Testament. But the word holy, the Greek word is hagios, and what does it mean? Say it louder. Set apart. That's, that's good. Because we typically think it means well-behaved or pure. But literally, it means separated, cut off. Another translation that I really like is it means other. And it carries the connotation, yes, of pure, sacred, blameless. But the way it refers to that, to that purity, that sinlessness, is it means that God is other. God is cut off. He is separate from anything evil, from anything sinful. Jesus' claim to be holy was a direct assertion of deity. That he fully possesses the separate, the pure, the sinless nature of God. He also claimed to be true. Greek word is aletheos. And it means genuine, authentic, pure. I was not coughing before I came in this room. And, and I think the emphasis of the word true here is that he is the only true God in a region that recognized hundreds of false gods and goddesses. You see, there aren't a lot of ways to God and there aren't other gods. There's one way to God. In a world that's filled, our world even, is filled with false gods, false beliefs, false practices. 
but Jesus is the truth. He's the only truth, both then and now. Reflect for just a second. What are the false gods, false beliefs, false practices that have permeated your life? Are you worshiping at an altar other than Jesus Christ? Now you say, oh, no, I only believe Jesus. No, but look at your behavior. Look at your behavior. Jesus also identified himself as one who has the key of David. Now, key represents authority always. The name David symbolizes the messianic office. So as holder of the key of David, Jesus alone has the authority to determine who enters his messianic kingdom. He has the keys to salvation and to blessing. And then it continues in verse 7, the latter part. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. Jesus is omnipotent, and what he does cannot be changed, overturned, or reversed. In what area of your in what area of your life do you need the intervention of one who's all powerful? Anybody need that? You need some energy. Let me see your hand. That's a display of faith right there. Do you believe that Christ can intervene? Have you asked him? How many times? Sometimes we ask and then we get mad, don't we? But understand that the asking is a demonstration of faith. Sometimes God's silence is to grow us. He never abandons us. He does step back to let us grow. So ask him. You have an issue that only he can solve? Ask him. Believing that he can control the situation that you're facing. It's interesting, isn't it, how often we talk about theologically about the power of God And then when it comes to our family, when it comes to something at work, we suddenly forget that he's powerful. And then we start doing what? Do we pray? No. We complain. We whine. We worry. What else do we do? And none of those things are faithful. Thank you, Brantley. None of those things. Have we Have we forgotten that Christ is omnipotent? How many of us are are frantically grabbing levers trying to make something happen? Asking people, pleading with others, begging our children to change and neglecting to pray, asking the one who is all-powerful, who has access to every heart and every mind. In this letter, Jesus offers affirmation. 
at verse 8. I know all the things you do. And I have opened a door that no one can close. Now, this is certainly the door into Christ's messianic kingdom. And I want you to understand this. If Christ has opened the door for you into his kingdom, who can close it? And that includes you. That includes you. Because you are no longer in control. It's guaranteed. The salvation of these believers that that was evidenced in their lives was secure. But I think this open door also referred to opportunities to serve the Lord, to spread the good news. Paul often used this phrase, an open door for ministry. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Little strength probably refers to this church being small in number. But they obeyed the word of Jesus. They responded to the teaching of the apostles. And they did not deny him. Even when facing pressure to do so. You know, sometimes we can deny Jesus without ever saying a word. When the, when the obvious answer is Jesus, when the thing we should say to encourage is seek Christ and we don't, aren't we denying? Aren't we denying? When you hear someone offer a problem and you know the only answer is prayer and yet we don't pray, aren't we denying? Try it this week. When someone complains to you about something, say, let me pray for you right now. Who's willing to do that? Right then. Right then. Now, what will happen is it will build your faith. It will build your boldness. But it will also cause these people to leave you alone who don't want to pray. Because some people don't really want an answer. Their conversation is composed of their complaints. So you can end that quickly. Let's pray. And if they're really irritating, let's get on our knees right now. That's right. Try that in Home Depot. They'll think you're looking for something. Now, this church was faithful. Because they trusted in the call of Christ to spread good news. But they understood that the call includes the enablement. How many of you have a call? You know it right now and you wonder, how can this happen? How many of you? God's called you to something and you think, well, how can this happen? He didn't ask you to do what you can't do. He called you to do what you can do. And he will do what only he can do. 
See, a lot of times we don't activate God's involvement because we're too scared to do our part. And so we wonder, well, why doesn't God work? Because you haven't moved. With the call comes the enablement. And this small group of Christians understood that. Has God opened a door for you? Given you a calling to reach someone, to carry out some task. And you're waiting for him to do it. And he's waiting for you to step through the door. Now, yes, you have to depend on him. But why would he intercede when you're stuck? Faith has to be displayed at times. Revelation 3 verse 9. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they're Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Now, apparently these Christians in Philadelphia faced opposition from Jews. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Now, these people were Jews racially. They were Jews culturally. They were very likely even Jews ceremoniously, ceremonially, religiously. They weren't Jews spiritually. Is that confusing? They weren't Jews spiritually. Because Romans 2, 28 and 29 says that you're not a Jew because your parents were Jewish. You're not a Jew because you had physical circumcision. You're only a Jew when your heart's been changed by the Spirit. That's regeneration. See, God didn't set up Jews as one religion, Christians as another. It's one continuity of faith. But these Jews stopped at the Messiah. And so Jesus is calling them a synagogue, not of God, but of Satan. And it's interesting that he even promised that some of these who were persecuting them would actually bow at their feet. I don't know when this would happen. Would it happen after Christ's return? Perhaps. But they would know that these Christians were loved by God and were God's people. Now understand where these Jews were. Humanly speaking, they thought they were doing right. Humanly speaking, they thought that they were punishing heretics who were dishonoring God. I mean, Paul had been one of them, right? Paul had put people to death for claiming Christ was the Messiah. But Jesus would reveal to these people at some point 
that these Christians were God's people. He continues at verse 10. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing which will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Because these believers in Philadelphia had endured oppression for their faith, Jesus promised to deliver them from the wrath of God during the great tribulation. Revelation 2.10. And then he continues in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. And that Greek word can be translated suddenly or quickly. So it doesn't necessarily tell us what year it will happen as much as it describes the way he will come. He'll come without warning. He'll show up immediately and take many, many people by surprise. Will you be one of those people surprised? And this coming refers to a time of testing that precedes Jesus' second coming to establish his kingdom. And it can happen at any time. It will occur swiftly. I've told y'all this a number of times, but a friend of mine from back when I was practicing law in Columbus, Georgia, his name is, was Gary Levi, died of a brain tumor. But he would always sign his notes to me. We didn't have text back then. In fact, we chiseled notes on... <laughs> But he would sign his notes. My friends called me just by the initial P. And he'd say, P, maybe today. My friend died of a brain tumor. He was the same age as me. He died several years ago. And we would say premature. But perhaps not. Perhaps God rewarded a man who longed to see him. How many of us long to see Christ? How many of us look up frequently and say, maybe today? Or are we tenaciously holding on to this world and thinking, if I can only get a little more of this world has to offer? And then Jesus continued, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. In preparation for Jesus' return, he instructed this church and these people to continue their faithful obedience so they would receive eternal reward. He didn't want them to think, well, he's not coming for a while, so I'm just going to I'm going to involve in what this world has to offer. Because he hasn't shown up quickly. Do we feel like that? Are we about God's business thinking maybe today he's coming soon? Are we holding on to our faith? Are we practicing trust in God? Are we living as though today may be the day of his return? His return. 
Jesus promised rewards as well. In verse 12. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. And they will never leave it. Now, the, the earthquake that I told you about of, of 17 B.C. left many buildings unstable. So, a number of citizens moved out of the city. And they lived in the countryside because the buildings were dangerous. And then these aftershocks would cause them to fall down and more people were injured. So, when Jesus tells these people who had suffered earthquake, who had suffered aftershocks, that they would never leave their homes. That was very meaningful. You know what? If any of, any of you have ever been evicted, have ever had to suffer through foreclosures, have ever had to leave homes, this statement would mean more to you. You'll get a home in heaven and you'll never have to leave. Now, it's interesting that Jesus promised that these people would have a place of honor. They would be pillars of the temple of God in heaven because there's no temple of God in heaven. Revelation 21, 22 says there will not be a temple standing in heaven. Why not? Why wouldn't there be a temple in heaven? Because, yeah, that's exactly right. Because all of heaven is a place to worship. There won't be the need for one location because the presence of God will fill all of heaven and we will be in the presence of God all the time. And so we just commune with him. We talk to him continually. But you know what? That's what it's supposed to be like now. Because this is a building, but the scripture tells us God doesn't dwell in buildings made with human hands. Where's the temple of God on earth? Within you. Within you. But you have to access God's spirit and know you're in his presence. Verse 12 continues. And I will write on them the name of my God. God's name being written on us means we're owned by him. But not like being enslaved by him, rather like being his child. You know, there's a sense in which I own two daughters, they're mine. And two grandsons, they're mine. But the relationship is not one of dominance. It's one of nurture and love and intimacy. Is God's name written on you? Do you know that you are his and he is yours? 
That's what this means. And then he says, and they may be citizens in the city of my God. The new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. See, Christians will have eternal citizenship in heaven's capital city, the new Jerusalem. And if you want to read about that, Revelation 21, read that chapter. And it just describes what that city will be like. It'll be a place of security and safety, joy and peace. And then he continues in verse 12, and I will also write on them my new name. Jesus promised these believers that they would know his new name. But what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. We know Jesus now, but we know him incompletely. We get get glimpses of him But as Corinthians 13 says, it's like looking in a mirror, a misty mirror. What we see is true, but it's not full. It's not clear. But we will see him face to face. And we will know him fully then. Are you eager to see Jesus as he is? Does that motivate you? Are you motivated to know him? Because we get greater glimpses of him even on earth as we pray. If we spend time in the word and we we spend time in his presence, God shows us himself. I mean, have you learned anything new about God this week? A new wrinkle of his personality, a new way he intervenes. Because he's offered himself that intimately, that personally. And sometimes he'll just show you something that you'll understand. It's only by his spirit. But he promises you that you'll know him fully in that day because you will see him. As he really is. 1 John 3.12 says. This letter presents the same closing that other letters did. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit. And understand what he's saying to the churches. You see how he keeps repeating this folks. Are we listening? Are we seeking? Are we hearing? Are we heeding? This letter to the church in Philadelphia reveals that God blesses and protects churches that remain faithfully obedient to him and his word, even in the midst of difficulties. What is Christ saying to you right now? What does he want to show you about himself? Is he suggesting that there's an area where obedience needs to begin in your life. Counselors will come to the front. Let me urge you, the soul training for this week is rewards, where we ask God, if if I make the changes you're telling me about, Lord, 
what are the rewards that you've planned for me? Father, we thank you for this word. Help us to desire to know you. And Lord, as we know you, we'll desire to please you by obeying your word. Lord, I pray that you would draw many to yourself right now, Lord. Save some, Lord, to glorify your name. In your blessed son's name we offer this. Amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 to get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives and many other resources on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.